Welcome to Little Known History of Sydney. I'm Ilana Penderose. And I'm Dr Robert Jones. Today we'll be talking about iconic poet and writer Henry Lawson. Though their lives overlapped by more than 20 years, and though they ended up suburbs apart, Henry Lawson and our previous literary subject, Kenneth Slesser, have very little in common. Both were born of immigrant parents, both had their names changed during childhood, but whereas Slesser had been born into a country that was coming of age, feeling more united and more sure of itself than at any time previously, Lawson's roots lay in a far more precarious, far more hostile country. It was a country of squatters, bushrangers, immigrants and convicts. To give some context, Western Australia was still a penal colony when Lawson was born. It was a country that was subdivided into squabbling colonies, each with their own distinctive takes on politics and government. In short, these were men that were worlds apart in outlook, even if they weren't worlds apart in distance. Henry Lawson was born in the mining town of Grenville in central west New South Wales in 1867. He was a child of the Australian gold rushes. His father, Niels Larsen, was a Norwegian sailor who had gone to sea at 21 and had jumped ship in Melbourne in 1855 to try his luck in the Australian goldfields. Dr Jones, can you give us some background on the Australian gold rushes? What was it like at this time? Yes, when we think of Sydney and of Australia during the second half of the 19th century, it would be very difficult to ignore the gold rushes. Gold, in a sense, is precisely what this country would have been waiting for in order to progress itself from a collection of struggling colonies into what could be deemed a nation in its own right, possibly even a nation-state someday. Now, in 1851, when gold is first discovered in regional New South Wales, convictism was already on the way out. Transportation had effectively ended the year before, had already well and truly ceased in Queensland, was about to cease in Victoria and Tasmania, and it's only really in Western Australia, as you say, where there was a dire need for labour and for manpower at this time that transportation continues. In its wake, of course, what we get is a major increase in free settlement of people freely and willingly choosing to settle in the colonies of Australia. Uh, South Australia had actually been founded as a free settlement in 1836, and it was never a penal colony. Uh, but even with this in mind, there is still immense challenges ahead for a set of far-flung British colonies that were still struggling to adapt to a very inhospitable, very alien environment around them. Now, gold is a major game-changer for immigration. More people travelled to Australia between 1851 and 1855 than during nearly 60 years of transportation beforehand. Uh, the gold rush phenomenon, if we can call it that, wasn't a new one, uh, having already left its mark in the United States and California. And what we get here in Australia is a mixture of fear and excitement. Yes, fortunes might be made, but could it be at the expense of common decency, the rule of law and order? Criminal activity, greed, violence, thievery uh, had all been features of the California gold rushes. And the fact that many of the early gold diggers here in Australia had previously dug in America didn't really help the situation. Initially, the government in Sydney does take steps to ensure that everything is fair, that everybody gets a piece of the action. And this works fairly well in the beginning, but although things do begin to get a little bit of out of hand by 1854, with the events of the so-called Eureka Stockade down in Ballarat, Victoria. But all this is yesterday's news, really. 
by the time that the young Norwegian sailor Niels Larsen, whom you mentioned, jumped ship in Melbourne in 1855 and begins his own search for gold. Gold diggers typically didn't stay in one place for long. They often followed word of mouth on where the next great find had been uh, and made out for that particular locality. Towns sprang up where there had previously been no towns before or where there had been very little in the way of civilization at any rate. The miner's life was, was not a glamorous one by any means, often working with rudimentary tools, often living out of tents. Uh, I believe Henry Lawson was actually born in a tent, often knee-deep in mud or struggling in the, in the face of gales of dust, and most diggers came away empty, as empty-handed as when they had begun. Henry Lawson's father, Niels, um, who later changed his name to Peter, was certainly no exception to this. And it's partly for this reason that his son's existence would be as disadvantaged as it was from the beginning. Now, you mentioned Niels changing his name to Peter Lawson after the birth of his first son, Henry. He had married Louisa Aubrey in 1866. And three months after Henry Lawson was born, the family moved. Yes, as I say, the gold digger's life was often a nomadic one. Uh, moving from place to place, wherever the opportunities for winning big appeared to be. Henry Lawson was born in western New South Wales in Grenfell, a town that had up until recently been known as Emu Creek, which was rechristened in honour of gold commissioner at Forbes, John Grenfell, who'd been shot dead by bushrangers whilst travelling through the region. And this gives us some indication of just how dangerous, how potentially hostile the Australian outback could be during this period. Henry was born in Grenfell, but his family don't really remain there for very long, following word of a greater opportunity of finding gold in nearby Eurunderi, near Mudgee. It's here, several years later, that Louisa Lawson convinces her husband to abandon the prospect of easy money and pursue the day-to-day -day job of building and construction. Choosing to settle at long last, Peter constructs a two-room timber house, and as one of Henry's earliest memories, it must have been one of his earliest memories, this house becomes something of a recurring theme in his writings, turning up in one of his most famous stories, arguably, uh, The Drover's Wife, in 1892. Now, read the right way, one can discern an awful lot about Lawson, his childhood, what really made the man tick, just from reading his poems and his stories, many of which were based on his own experiences. The title of The Drover's Wife, for example, could essentially be read as representing Lawson's own mother, who was often forced to take on odd jobs whilst her husband was away on building, working to raise her growing family almost single-handedly. She even has to campaign for the establishment of a school in Urundari in order to give Henry an education, into which he's finally enrolled in 1875. And it was to this school that Henry would later return in 1914, a record being made in the school's visitors' book, which I believe is currently held in the National Archives. Clearly, he looked back nostalgically on his time in the outback as somewhat of an innocent or more happy period in his life. However poor his family might have been, they were extremely poor from what we know, he probably believed that he'd never know the likes of those times again. And this really comes across in a poem he writes in 1890 called Eurundery, which reads, I was there in late years, but there's many a change, where the Kajigong River flows down through the range. For the curse of the town with the railroad had come, and the goldfields were dead and the girl and the chum, and the old home were gone, yet the oaks seemed to speak, 
of the hazy old days of Yurundiri Creek. Now, Lawson's schooling amounted to no more than three years in a bush school classroom. An ear infection he had suffered as a child would soon take its toll on his hearing, and by the age of 14, he was almost completely deaf. This was a setback for the young Lawson, as he was already the butt of much ridicule and uh, juvenile cruelty amongst his peers for his reserved nature. Dr Jones, he also had to juggle both the practical and emotional hardships of having a mother and father whose marriage was falling apart. Now, divorce was unheard of in this age, and as a fairly devout religious individual with a reputation to consider, Louisa Lawson never spoke about her separation from Peter in these terms. But in 1883, matters come to a head. Frustrated by her husband's frequent absences and by the, the backwardness of bush living, Louisa takes two of Henry's siblings and relocates to Sydney, setting up home in Phillips Street in what is today part of the Central Business District. Making ends meet through washing and sewing clothes, as well as taking in boarders, Louisa seeks the only form of welfare that was then on offer for a struggling family. There was no government welfare. This is church benevolence. She had already been a member of the Spiritualist Society in Yurundari, and when she moves to Sydney, she quickly becomes involved with this progressive Spiritualist Lyceum, which meets at Lee House in Castlereagh Street. And it's through this institution that Louisa begins her noted foray into political activism. Uh, Henry, meanwhile, who had remained in regional New South Wales with his father, working on building projects in various areas, including the Blue Mountains, is soon convinced to join her mother in Phillips Street. Uh, having grown up fairly isolated, uh, fairly alienated from his peers, as you say, he had always been an avid reader, and it is to her son that Louisa first looks for assistance in establishing a newspaper. Now, Henry Lawson, unlike our previous subject, Kenneth Lesser, was never a keen journalist. Though he became politicised in the two decades leading up to Federation, his first love was always creative literature, and it would be this format which he would convey most of his political rhetoric. In 1887, his first published work, A Song of the Republic, appears in the fiery nationalist weekly The Bulletin, reflecting the kind of thinking that was, that was fairly prevalent in Sydney at this time. In 1887, the mayor of Sydney calls a public meeting to plan celebrations for Queen Victoria's Jubilee. Now, such meetings were soon overtaken by Republicans, who called for a free and independent Australia, or at the very least, an independent New South Wales. And if we look at the independence debate of the 1880s, the kind of extremist, if we want to use that modern phrase, thought that was on offer was, if anything, more radical in the 1880s than it later became during the so-called Federation debate, the debate that led to the Federation of Australia that we know today, carried forth by Henry Parks. And what alters the balance is the depression of the 1890s, the economic depression which took place partly as a result in the fall of wool prices but there was also a considerable drought which took place in western New South Wales as well. Now, Henry Lawson's most celebrated works were published largely between 1896 to 1902. Like Lawson's experiences of outback living, they were primarily inspired by the harsh realities of daily existence. Uh, Lawson's youth had not been an entirely happy one, despite the best efforts of his mother, and Louisa as a suffragette, was an inspiration for much of Henry's work. Poems such as His Mother's Mate, The Drover's Wife, The Selector's Daughter, and The Shanty Keeper's Wife. Dr Jones, although this was his golden age, 
Lawson fought a battle with alcoholism, which first became apparent soon after he moved to Sydney. Well, Lawson during this period was essentially a worker by day and a co-editor by night. He's extremely busy. He obtains work as an apprentice coach painter shortly after arriving in Sydney, and it's through his commute each day from the family house in Phillip Street and later from his own residences in North Sydney on the North Shore that he began to develop some of his more left-wing, more socialist philosophies. Uh, though he was most often associated with the bush, there is certainly plenty of material which he published on city life as well, such as Faces in the Street, published in 1888, which recounts the author's experiences of waiting for a train at Petersham Railway Station. Now, this reads, They lie, the men who tell us in a loud, decisive tone, that want is here a stranger, and that misery is unknown. For where the nearest suburb and the city proper meet, my windowsill is level with the face in the street. And today one can find a plaque on the wall of Petersham Railway Station commemorating Lawson's moment of inspiration that cold, wet night of 1888, when he began thinking of this poem. It's well to remember that whilst Lawson was painting railway carriages, another of Australia's most well-known and celebrated poets, Banjo Patterson, was beginning a highly successful career as a solicitor, setting up home in the northern suburb of Gladesville. And it's not difficult to see, therefore, how their perspectives on life and Australian society could differ so much despite the fact that they were both country boys that had come to the city to make good. Lawson would have liked to have studied at university, much like Patterson had and much like Kenneth Lesser would later have the opportunity of doing in 1919, but he fails his matriculation exams, which he had been studying for during this period. This really only adds to the bitterness and the pessimism that were never really far away from his creative style and output. I often think that Lawson is perhaps the closest thing Australia really ever has to to, say, a Tolstoy or a Dostoevsky, whose bleak portrayals of life under Russian Tsarism during the 19th century are perhaps as depressing as they are compelling, like Lawson's experiences of the outback. They were primarily inspired by harsh realities of everyday life. And there is a truth there, I think, that, that helps to make his work as relevant now as it ever was then. Australian national identity, after all, promotes triumph over adversity of the Aussie battler or the underdog spirit, whatever you want to call it. And I think Lawson really represents all of these things. Now, when he first moved to Sydney, Lawson went from one job to another without any real improvement in his standard of living. It's difficult to tell, but Lawson's propensity of alcohol consumption is fairly apparent soon after he hits Sydney going from one job to another, as you say, without any real improvement in his fortunes. Uh, in 1891, he takes up writing for the Brisbane Boomerang, only to be laid off months later. He also had the Bulletin, of course, to fall back on, the, the famous nationalist weekly of the period. And in July 1892, he publishes one of his most famous critiques of Australian bush life, entitled Up the Country, sparking one of the great literary disputes in Australian history in what subsequently became known as the Bulletin Debate, Lawson was criticised for what might be deemed a doom and gloom portrayal of the bush by none other than Banjo Patterson, who I mentioned before. And Patterson publishes a response entitled In Defence of the Bush shortly afterwards. Lawson, who derided writers like Patterson as city bushmen, even though he was in some ways a city bushman himself, was not swayed in his convictions, especially when he travelled by train to Burke in northwest New South Wales several months later to witness the devastation caused by the drought in the region. This one journey, I think, inspired some of his most important work, including 
some of the writings he published with the help of his mother's printing press in 1894, entitled Short Stories in Verse, and While the Billy Boils, a collection of short stories published in 1896. This was clearly a difficult time for Lawson, but it was nevertheless a creatively fertile one. Let's move ahead to 1896, when Lawson married Bertha Brett. One gains certain insights into their marriage by reading his Joe Wilson stories, which began with Brighton's Sister-in-Law, which was published in 1900. Yes, in 1896, Lawson marries Bertha Brett, the daughter of a prominent German socialist. Despite producing two children, however, uh, the marriage is doomed to failure, dissolving in 1902. Lawson's creative zenith, I think, had been reached by this time. And whether it was his alcoholism, which actually led to his imprisonment in Darlinghurst Jail for non-payment of child support, an experience which inspired a poem, not surprisingly, in 1908, entitled 103, which was his prisoner number, or the frequent bouts of depression which led to him being admitted to a mental institution, his subsequent works were, were never as well received as the ones he had produced during the 1890s. It was during these early years of the 20th century that he purchased a room above the Coffee Palace in Miller Street, North Sydney, where he was cared for by Isabel Byers, the proprietress, for the rest of his days, more or less. He becomes something of a local celebrity for both his, his work and his drunken behaviour, being detained on more than one occasion by the local constabulary. There is a marvellous story I came across when I was researching this uh, this particular episode, which involved Lawson being arrested on suspicion of being drunk or disorderly, when in reality I think he was merely struggling to uh, traverse the, the harrowing incline of Blues Point Road in in, uh, in North Sydney. And it, it's these sorts of things that give, give much colour to, to Lawson's existence in during this period as Somewhat, somewhat of a larrikin. Henry Lawson died of a cerebral hemorrhage in 1922 whilst living in Abbotsford in Sydney's Inner West. And he was actually one of the first literary figures in our history to be honoured by a state funeral. I think it says something for the high regard in which Henry Lawson was held. As one of the writers who has helped to shape this country's national identity, he was actually one of the first literary figures in Australian history to be honoured by a state funeral attended by Prime Minister Billy Hughes and the New South Wales Premier Jack Lang. Now, this is embellished in 1932 with a bronze statue of Lawson, which had taken several years to create. There had been much debate surrounding its design. Uh, standing with some of his most closely associated literary images, uh, a swagman, a dog and a fence post, I believe, are all part of the statue. And this is erected in the domain parklands, surrounded by the loop of Mrs Macquarie's Road. In 1949, we get a, a postage stamp bearing Lawson's portrait, and in 1966, following the first introduction of decimal currency in Australia, when we switch from pounds to dollars, Lawson was pictured on the $10 note, standing in front of the old mining town of Gulgong, which I think features in the Joe Wilson series. Certainly, Joe Wilson is mates, published in 1902. Now, interestingly, in 1993, when the Australian government was in the process of replacing paper notes with plastic, putting a fresh set of faces on the new bills, Lawson's face is replaced. And it's actually replaced by none other than Banjo Patterson, his old rival. Now, even acknowledging Lawson as a son of the outback, as a child of the gold rushes, and of a bush lifestyle in Yurundari, it's not difficult to see why he is so closely associated with Sydney. 
uh, if one is interested in the places where he lived, uh, the businesses he frequented, or even the people he knew, then there's a wonderful walking guide offered by the North Sydney Heritage Centre, which takes you up from the old ferry wharf at McMahon's Point, where many working-class Sydney-siders, including Lawson himself, would have caught ferries to the city in the days before the Sydney Harbour Bridge was built, all the way to Yoroka Street, where Lawson lived at several times during his years on the North Shore. Uh, if one is seeking more creative, more literary-orientated tribute to the icon's work, then they need look no further than the Henry Lawson Festival of Arts, hosted by his birthplace of Grenfell every year since 1958. Um, it's a somewhat ironic point that Lawson himself never actually knew the town, having left it as an infant in 1867, never to return, but he was still inspired to reference it in his 1911 poem, Said Grenfell to My Spirit. And I think it's in this self-reflective vein, far more than in the, the black humour of later poems like 1921's Din's Hotel, for example, where after too long beers apiece we found the world right, uh, that one seems to find Henry Lawson at his most content. And it's on this note, therefore, that we conclude. Said Grenfell to my spirit, you've been writing very free of the charms of other places, and you don't remember me. You have claimed another native place and think it's nature's law since you never paid a visit to a town you never saw. So you sing of mudgy mountains, willowed stream and grassy flat, but I put a charm upon you, and you won't get over that. I've said Grenfell to my spirit, though you write of breezy peaks, golden gullies, wattle sidings, and the pools of Sheoak creeks. But the place your kin were born in, and the childhood that you knew, and your father's distant Norway, though it has some claim on you, though you sing of dear old mudgy, and the home on Pipe Clay Flat, you were born on Grenfell Goldfield, and you can't get over that. And Henry Lawson was buried alongside other noted writers in Waverley Cemetery at Bronte in the eastern suburbs of Sydney. This is Little Known History of Sydney. I'm Ilana Penderose. And I'm Dr Robert Jones. And we will see you next time. 